welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by The Ocean Race. My guest this week was Damien Foxall, a five-time competitor in the race and a winner with Group Armour in 2011-12, and now a passionate advocate for ocean health. If you enjoy this interview, leave us a like, subscribe for more. We've plenty more lined up, but don't forget to let us know in the comments below who you want us to talk to next. Enjoy. Damien Foxall is one of a few Irish sailors in the races past, but somebody that's made a big impact. Having competed in five editions and winning the race with Group Armour in 2011-12. Outside of the race, he's also a big name in sailing, having made very substantial efforts in sailing records not least the circumnavigation of the globe with Steve Fawcett. But perhaps it's not the performance and the competition as much as the adventure that drives him. Damien, thank you very much for talking to me today. The reason I say that is there was an interesting quote of yours that I, that I found where you expressed something that I think many people have said before, where a lot of young people who might come into our sport might get turned off by that relentless pursuit of performance, and competition above all else. What is it that for yourself that gets you back out there? I mean, that sort of thing for some people might be a big driver. It might be something that puts them back on the shore. For you, something's got to be getting you back out on the water every day. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I'm just trying to remember actually when, um, in what context that, um, <laughs> that comment was made, but I think it was probably maybe a comment uh, around the really around the reason for sailing and the sailing community and the support for sailing communities and whether, um, you know, what are the roles of uh, sailing organizations in promoting and um, sustaining the sport? And I think these are all big questions that we need to consider in a broader context now as well. Um, performance and competition is something that we're all involved with, I guess, and I've been involved with for a long time. But it didn't start there. I grew up in Southwest Ireland. Um, we grew up adventure sailing. And I reconnected with that again recently because we just came out of Antarctica this winter um, and seeing the continent for the first time, despite having seen ice before, was a big eye opener. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it was, it rejuvenated me, I guess, in many ways. Um, and you know, allowed me to reconnect with some of the primary reasons that we go out in the water in the first place. Um, and it, it was, had nothing to do with competition. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about Antarctica, but before I do, I want to pick up on something you said. Um, you know, you grew up on a farm and I, I mean, I think I've got this right. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but your introduction to sailing differs from most people, certainly most people who go on to do the ocean race. I mean, you weren't somebody that uh, was in a squad with a coach driving hard. You had quite a kind of, uh, you know, natural introduction to being on the water and, and, and mucking about in boats. Yeah, no, totally. We, I, well, I mean, I, um, there was, a, I guess the seed was planted because in the adding of the, the, of the house at home, there were cardboard boxes of old pewter trophies that my granddad would have uh, won on, um, in the Wirral at the West Kirby, West Kirby Sailing Club. So I think, and mum would have sailed with him. So the, uh, I guess the apple didn't drop far from the tree. Um, but growing up in Southwest Ireland, there was definitely, at the time, there was definitely, you know, 
no yacht clubs or sailing clubs or sailing programs. Um, we sailed through the winter, built our own surfboards, had a small dinghy. And in the context of kind of just general life, I think our freezer was full of farm produce and fish produce. And it, we just took it for granted that, you know, the land supported us. Um, and I was mentioning that to someone else earlier on today, actually, that, you know, the first time that I, you know, when I've started sailing internationally and sailing into places like Miami or Rio, it really struck me. I was like, the first time I saw really a metrop metropolis on the edge of the water. And, you know, you arrive, when you arrive in a country from the water, you have a very different perspective than when you arrive by plane. And you're sort of looking at those cities on the edge of the water and you're just going, how, how does that work? What supports that city? <laughs> like, where does all the food come from? Like, you know, and it, it was really a, an eye opener. And I think at the time I just thought about it in the context of the immediate geographic situation of that city on the edge of the water. But of course, now we recognize that that uh, resources um, are much more finite than just that. So anyway, that's a separate link topic that I'm sure we'll get to. But, um, you know, sailing's been something that's, uh, you know, being on and around the water is something that's been inherent to the way I grew up. I've been very, very lucky to have a, made a career on and around the water and, and to have evolved that career, I guess, over the last, um, over the last decade into, um, you know, kind of bringing back a connection to the natural world and, and sustainability. So, um, you know, we're, we're very lucky, very lucky to be involved in, on the water and in sailing. And I think it's a privilege that brings a lot of opportunities and responsibilities as well. Let's talk about that luck because that's, that's the piece of the puzzle that I don't yet understand is you are, you know, young kid, teenager, early twenties, and you're sailing in a very kind of free way. Your name then crops up in quite a big way, a big splash in the uh, Figaro circuit in France. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Johan Rochon uh, and he talked about the Figaro. So I've had my crash course in what a brutal uh, piece of sailing that is. But I think the key thing for me with your experience is you seem to get in through the front door. You're there in the French, you know, the Brittany training base. You are, you are learning from the experts. How did we get from being a plucky Irish lad on a, on, a, on a farm to being right in the heart of the best, you know, offshore sailing school that there is? Yeah, and I think at the time, I knew why I wanted to be there, um, but probably didn't realize the, um, the full extent of, of uh, the opportunity. Um, but there's uh, quite a few miles and, and years between those two uh, timelines that you set for me. So um, I left school early. I spent uh, almost seven years working in the, um, in the Caribbean yachting industry. Um, during that time, we started, I started doing a lot of racing uh, on the American circuit, was involved with the Irish Admirals Cup team. Um, in the Caribbean, I saw the Route de Rum arriving, saw Florence Artaud arrive on our Groupier Premier. Beautiful trimaran, silver, turquoise, and, you know, along with all the other trimarans arriving um, at the end of that race. And, you know, 
I sort of realized that there's a whole other world out there uh, around sailing. I think it was just for most of us of this um, era, I guess, we're in the right place at the right time as the sport became a professional sport, attracted commercial sponsors and has gone on to be, you know, in our own way, um, uh, a professional sport. So I was lucky. I, I worked with amazing people, you know, Gordon Maguire, Paul Stanbridge, and Paul specifically said, you know, given your skill set and, you know, what you want to do, I think you should go and get involved in the Figaro and uh, just stop, stop talking to me about it, mate. just go and do it. <laughs> and uh, the way Paul would. And so that was it. Um, I'd previously sailed with Sydney, uh, Gavigny. He introduced me to Michel de Joyeux. Um, and yeah, amazing introduction to the, the, uh, Valley de Fou, the, uh, the, um, the sailing valley in, uh, in Brittany. And I think at the time I was the, probably one of the very few outsiders, so to speak, mm. or non-French sailors to get involved in that discipline at that stage. And how did you find, uh, how did you find, um, a comparatively small boat like the Figaro three? uh with foils how how was that performing on the water when you got it going oh uh, um i guess it's an evolution of the sport that we see across many disciplines uh and there are many classes where falls bring uh a new added value and aspect of the sport which is needed um it's probably partially the reason why we see you know a lot of kids even back windsurfing, but certainly kiteboarding or surfing or looking for mm. adrenaline speed driven sports. And so, you know, things like the 49er, which are fairly inaccessible for early sailors, uh, but they certainly in something nice to aspire to. Um, there are other much in other classes, which are much more accessible performance classes, which are much more accessible for the young sailor. And many of them, now include foils or a foil package and so there's a place for that i'm not sure that there's a place for foiling in every single class um yeah and sure the foils bring something nice to the figaro um it makes it um, more uh, it makes it a more difficult discipline significantly more discipline um difficult sorry and i wonder whether ultimately it's just created now a class which is um, a bit higher than it should be in terms of skill, um, in, ter in terms of skill requirements for an entry level class. Um, it's still serving its role in feeding the best sailors from a one design class into things like the ocean race and the Vendée Globe. But to get into the class, it's significantly more expensive. Um, there is a significant difference in terms of, uh, you know, the, how you, you know, performance of the best sailor against someone who's not quite up to speed. Um, I wonder if it really is providing the best platform, honestly. Um, but uh, we're all falling now, so <laughs> let's get on with it. Better get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned the, 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 the ocean race. So let's turn to that. Let's, let's talk Team Tycho. And, you know, you come into um, the race when uh the uk ireland was sort of featuring quite quite strongly in the race sort of geographically you know starting from southampton i remember going down to ocean village in southampton and seeing team tycho asa abloy all those boats all the all the 60s lined up there 
what got you onto those boats? Obviously, you'd made a bit of a name for yourself in the Figaro. Was that the missing piece of the puzzle? Was it plain sailing from there? Um, I think that's certainly, yes, I think, short answer. Yes, it was. Um, I'd worked sail previously with Paul Stanbridge, with Steve Hales. Um, Steve helped me significantly with the weather routing preparation for the Figaro. Um, uh, we were involved with a couple of Irish campaigns on the uh, Mum 36 circuit and, um, you know, in regattas in Hawaii and big boat series, etc. Um, so I was on the Grand Prix circuit as well as doing my Figaro racing and getting starting to get involved in some round the world events. And it was a sort of, I just was in the right place at the right time and um, was invited on to Tycho as a, uh, um, as Bauman Massman and um, joined a great group of guys. And it was, um, yeah, it was all I expected and more. And I think at that stage, not sure if there were any ice skates. Um, so we saw a lot of Antarctica. <laughs> we saw a lot of floating Antarctica. Um, I think we got further south and 60 south, somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. And um, it was everything that I expected the Whitbread, then the Volvo Ocean Race to be, everything and more. And, and um, yeah, we've uh, short memories, as we all say. And, and uh, that was it. We went on from there. Um, it's, I think what Tycho was a great project in terms of the way it was managed. It was a very professional project. Um, and I was lucky to kind of use that as a launching board for moving on to future campaigns. What became very evident was that even with the best team or the best managed project, to win something like the Ocean Race, it requires you to get your block of bricks out and make everyone perfectly placed. Um, and make sh and, but even then, there's no guarantee that it's going to give you a result. Um, it took a while before we finally, well, I finally managed to uh, get a win in the ocean race. Um, the result of, I think, four or five ocean races. And ultimately, when you think of it, at the time, they were coming around every three or four years. So nearly 20 years of, of work <laughs> to get there. Um, but it's been ultimately, I guess, a significant part of my sailing life. Did you, did you ever have a point I, sorry, my my mind is completely transfixed with what you were saying about the ice skates. I, I, of course, there was. I knew that there weren't ice skates, and then I knew that there was ice skates. I didn't think that there was. A, you know, I just didn't place when it was that you go from well, we're dodging this iceberg to we're going to stay a long way away from it. With an experience like that, or certainly anybody's first ocean race experience, was there a point when you thought this isn't for me? I'm stepping back. Um, no, I think as a young person, you're sort of going, okay, well, this seems to be the way it's done. Um, at least it <laughs> is, you know, at least that seems the way it's done in the other movies we've been watching, you know, videos we've been watching of Steinlager and all of the others. Mm. So this is it, you know, we're into it. It's like, but God, I'm, I'm happy someone else is in charge, <laughs> you know, sort of thing, you know, and, and then of course, you're, you know, obviously, you know, experience comes along and you kind of move up in terms of responsibility. And and um, by that stage, we'd integrated ice skates, but I've been involved with events where the Jules Verne, for instance, or around the world events like the Barcelona, where um, even if there were ice skates, 
uh, you were diving south very quickly to take the shortest, fastest route. Um, and yeah, when you're racing, ice is not a good thing. Um, it's a scary thing. Uh, it was amazing this winter to have spent four months down in Antarctica, literally um, parked in ice or alongside it, and listening to glaciers falling off the uh, all falling off the continent. Um, it's given me a, a new respect, but maybe uh, I would almost say like a dangerous respect for it. <laughs> um, I'm a lot more familiar with ice now than I was um, 30 years ago. What is that like when you do, you know, you've only ever seen these things as sort of looming potential, and let's say it, death traps, and you can get up close to them, you can hear them. What is that moment like? I have, I've got nothing that I can compare it with or even imagine it. Yeah, I think the closest, my first contact with real ice, I think, apart from uh, my time here in Canada, is when we broke the rig with Dong Fung uh, two races ago. Um, and we ended up piloting the boat through the um, Beagle Channel in the middle of the night and passing, um, you know, the, there's no moon at that stage. And the, you know, Pascal said, you know, he was down below navigating, he said, do you mind coming down having a look at the chart? And there was an sort of a series of zigzags on the chart uh, which neither of us had seen before but they were obviously very clearly at the exit the frontier basically of every valley where the mountain met the sea and we're like I don't know what that is and then just as whoever was driving on deck it was like at that stage everyone was sleeping one guy on deck he said no it was Kevin he said guys you got to come up and check this out and the moon had just come up over the mountain and lit up this new valley face that we were passing and it was glacier so a zigzag icon on a chart is glacier face so we saw that as we write that down as we went through the beagle channel and uh, then spent the next few days doing a jury rig mass to get the boat back in the race uh, but then moving on to this last winter and four months in antarctica obviously when you're cruising you've got the time to hopefully you're in the right boat we're in a uh, an aluminum boat so uh, designed for the purpose um, and you go at the right speed but still the same challenges you know when there's cold uh, when the water is cold and the air isn't it gets foggy uh, visibility can come down quite quickly um, around the Antarctic continent it creates its own weather catabatic winds and uh, quick weather changes so you have to be really careful um, anchorages are few and far between and even when you find an anchorage ice is moving in and out of it all the time so there's a real kind of challenge to finding the right safe um, place to be. Um, but it's a whole skill set that you take all, you know, basically take the skills that we've learned from other aspects of sailing, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's anchorages or coral, um, you know, coral pilotage. And all of that is relevant. Um, so after a couple of weeks, we felt more comfortable, I guess, nudging through ice, nudging through brush ice. There was one moment on uh, one evening where we pulled into this bay and there was just a narrow sea you know sh uh, shallow sea ice on the surface and uh, we couldn't get the anchor down through the ice so we just basically drove into it made a wedge and that was us for the night and you hope of course that the wind doesn't move the whole sheet of ice out of the bay i you know i've read a lot of crean and shackleton in those books but the the musings in those books are the statements they kind of the, the consistent thing which I understand now is what we see down there 
the mind cannot comprehend the scale of it, the detail of it, the change of um, the change of light. It's just a, it's another world. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. <laughs> well, it makes me want to go there, but what it does make me wonder is, I know you've got a family that I'm sure that you're very much devoted to them, but in another life, would you be that person that was there with the sort of six months worth of beard growth in a boat sailing the seas? I mean, it just sounds to me, hearing the way you talk, that you're so happy exploring the oceans like that. Uh, totally. Um, I think um, I think for most of us, we're happier on the water. Happiest. Mm. Let's say happiest. We're happiest on the water. And <laughs> in fact, I was looking through some photos last night. I was just trying to sort out all of my my files and stuff. And I come came across one shot of my son and he's kind of tucked into the um, mainsail cover of a boat that we chartered down in the Bahamas a couple of years ago. And he had this smile on his face that, you know, was just sort of lit up the whole sky, you know, and even his little sister, who normally annoys him, just like, wow, Oshin's, it's been a long time since I've seen Oshin smile like that. And it, and it, it was just one of those smiles. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think, yeah, you know, we're all happy on the water. Um, in connection with nature, we think about, you know, the present. We don't think about too much about the past. And we certainly we're not thinking about the future. You're in the moment. Um, and that's, I think that's a state that, you know, all athletes and will understand as well. You're, um, uh, something like the Volvo Ocean Race, of course, is quite a long moment. It's nine months from start to finish, and that's just the race. So, um, best way to live it, really. <laughs> well, well, then let's, let's talk about the reward that you do get for that sort of level of commitment, you know, the, the, the race demands. The win that you had in 2011-12 with uh, Group Amma, selling with uh, Frank Camas. How did that team compare with, you know, your other experiences before? Um, we were very lucky uh, with that campaign because the structure that Frank and Stefan Gilbo had built up with Group Amma and their relationship allowed, us, allowed them to engage with the ocean race as an entry uh, far out. I think we started straight off the back of the camp of the previous campaign. I think I'd been sailing with Green Dragon. Um, I'd obviously spent a lot of time in France racing. Um, they were, we, I'd sailed against Frank. In fact, when I, when I first arrived in the Figaro, he was, uh, he was, I think he'd won that year. Um, I moved on from the Figaro to sailing the, in the trimaran class and would have been sailing against Frank um, over that four or five year period. So we knew of and had sailed against each other. Um, we had the advantage of three years leading into um, that edition. It was, uh, it was an edition in an open, virtually open class, box rule, right? The Volvo 70. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis was very clearly on design and innovation, which was Group Amma's skill set. They'd built up a whole research, you know, whole resource around that, their own design team. They employed uh, Juan K to design the base, um, the base design for the boat, and then um, brought their own value-added touch from the Group Amma sailing team. We had access to France's best offshore sailors, 
um, Charles Caudrelier, who of course went on to skipper both of Don Feng's entries um, and bringing um, a lot of the original group AMA or some of the original group AMA crew with him as well. So yeah, right place, right time, kind of, you know, I guess um, situa um, situation of circumstances which all led up to Group AMA having the right uh, skill set, the right resources and the luck. You still need luck to make sure that even when you lose a rig, like we did halfway through the race, that you can still recover. And that was a moment, I think that was the crux of, the, of that whole race for us. Uh, we could have gone on to a kind of a desperate spiraling descendant of, of, you, know, uh, of um, you know, bad luck and underperformance. Um, but the opposite happened. Uh, the team rallied around Frank and the team and, and um, we went on to continue to win and win races and win legs and win inshore races and um, consolidate the overall win, which was uh, a huge comeback ultimately. And on a personal note, finishing in Galway, a nice way to go about it. I mean, that's everything coming together right there. Yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, it's, I, I still really can't conceptualize that that's that whole couple of months. Uh, we'd obviously had an amazing campaign with the Green Dragon with a stopover in Galway. It was a great stopover. Uh, it's very close to where I grew up. At that stage, sailing, certainly on the world stage, but even in Ireland, had become, you know, recognized as a, as a, as a sport. And um, uh, and then with Krupama, we, you know, the last stopover was in Galway and right past my home where I grew up. And uh, I suppose just validated and justified all the hard work that, um, you know, that my, myself, my family and all my, you know, people I've raced with, raced against, um, you know, sort of just validated all that effort. Um, and... You know, so it's great to be able to take that, I suppose, and, you know, build on it and to consider now, you know, you know I've been able to go on and do other races and um, look for podium, repeats of the podium in other, in other ways. Um, but there's a broader context, I think, to sport, which, which uh, a win possibly allows you to um, think about a bit more. Um, the initial kind of need for justifying 20 years in the ocean race had been fulfilled by a Volvo win. And I was able to kind of step back and go, okay, I want to be involved with a team that I'm happy, you know, working within, um, has the right philosophy around why we're doing it, um, is working with partners that, um, that are there for meaning and with purpose. And of course, you know, throughout our event now, like, you know, the ocean race and in the last, you know, the last team, best is 11th hour racing. And now with 11th hour racing, um, we're in a space which looks at the sport and looks at the ocean race in much, much broader terms than, than I initially started competing with, but echo in many ways the way I grew up. So it's very satisfying and kind of along with that comes a lot of, I kind of feel responsibility and opportunities. So. Does that role, like you say, that you've got now at the moment with, uh, with 11th Hour Racing looking for the next edition, to the role that you're doing there as a sustainability manager, hearing you speak, I'm guessing it's, it's a natural fit for you. 
Yeah, and I'm very lucky. I think, again, you know, Mark and Charlie, um, this is their third campaign. It's fairly unusual in our, in our sport, I think, um, to have consistency from one campaign to another. Quite often they're bespoke campaigns which are put together. If we're lucky, we can roll into two campaigns. Mark and Charlie are going into their third ocean race, eight years, and from a sustainability, but even if you take it from a you know, communications or performance standpoint, it's about moving the benchmark each time to something that's even more ambitious. And that's never more important in, this, in the sustainability space. So for a typical sporting organization, football team, um, or other sporting um, team that's applying sustainability, they can apply sustainability strategy over the long term and see changes from one year to the other. Mm. In sailing, it's, as a team, it's harder to do that um, as a team. Certainly organizations, yacht clubs can certainly do that. But as a team, it's hard to do that because it's, you know, okay, how do we apply sustainability here for this 12-month campaign? There's a limit to what you can do. Um, mm. So this is a really a strong one, I think, for Mark and Charlie's campaign and rolling from Alpha Medica through Vessels and Lemonthal Racing now into this campaign. This campaign, very similar to Group Ama, is a three- to four-year campaign. We've got a great training boat in the, um, under the original name of uh, Alex's Hugo Boss, and it's now been rebranded 11-1 for us and the 11th Hour Racing training boat. The guys did a great job in the last uh, transatlantic Jack Fab double-handed race and Charlie and Pascal got a third. So, you know, really well done. Um, and we're, you know, rolling into the design and build of a new boat. Um, so the scope of the campaign is, is large. We need to step up from applying sustainability to a 12-month racing campaign to a three- or four-year campaign that involves all of these various elements, boat build, design, innovation, uh, operations obviously on and off the water um, and to help me we've been able to bring on Amy Munro um, who's worked in that space uh, a lot and we've also brought on an intern as well in the uh, in our sustainability department so kind of the scale of the whole campaign has I guess grown with the importance of sustainability within the team now with 11th Hour Racing as our primary um, sponsor and partner sustainability is the deliverable outside of performance and we don't see them as being separate or different um, or incompatible on the contrary on the contrary we see sustainability as um, as a way of showcasing performance um, and there's certainly you know decisions to be made but you know our role is to showcase real solutions to the real challenges faced by faced by the sport and by our industry and so by being the most performant boat on the water with the current design parameters but looking for the solutions that are available to us within those parameters within the race rules within the class rules we're already showcasing a vision of what can happen in the future and the next layer of course is then to provide recommendations that by changing those rules and policies, how can we have an even bigger impact? And so we're working very closely with the organizations, of course, like the Ocean Race, but Imoka and the other um, boats within the Imoka um, fleet to reconsider what the race rules, what the class rules should look like. Does it help going into those conversations for someone like yourself? Um, I'm sure some people are very receptive 
to ideas. I'm sure some people are not. Um, but you don't, you're not speaking from a position of purely somebody who's looked at a spreadsheet or I read a book on it. You've been out there, you're a sailor, so you know, look, you can do it this way. And a team does operate in this way. I'm guessing your experience is something that gives you a little bit of ammunition here. Yeah, I'm not sure we need an awful lot of ammunition. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people who are looking at this space, a lot of people who haven't looked at it, but are aware that they're going to be asked mm. questions soon and mm. understand that they need to, you know, find solutions um, which are relevant to the products that they're creating or the services they're providing. So honestly, there's, we really feel like as a team, we're the right team, we're the right people in the right place um, doing the right work. And, you know, the choice, of course, when you decide to enter the ocean race uh, with the Amoka class, the move to basing our team um, initially in Brittany was a very obvious one from a performance standpoint, from access to the skill and expertise that has been developed in Brittany and the Amoka class in that space. It was very obvious. Our partnership with Mayor Concept, Francois Scabar's teams is fundamental to that whole thing. Um, but funnily enough, it's also been a very sustainable choice because the marine industry in Brittany by its very nature has very short supply chains. One, uh, you know, just down the road, our mast is being built in, in L'Oreal. Um, it's very likely that most or many of our components for the boat will come from within Brittany or at least the Western France um, area. And so that's a hugely sustainable choice. It's sustainable not just from the environmental um, context, but also from a, um, a social and economic context in terms of supporting uh, a sustainable industry. And everyone really within the industry is looking for, wants to apply sustainability, just don't necessarily have the have the all the solutions and i think no no one person has all the solutions it's about collaborating to find um to find the right way forward um an important i guess one context to share is that sailing in inherently um involves technology and innovation and therefore our gray matter um, as sailors, the best sailors typically can take a concept or a feeling that they have as an athlete on the water and transfer it to a designer or a design board. Um, and so up until now, we've been always, everyone's been focused on performance um, and using all of this gray matter and some of it's quite significant, you know, some bloody smart sailors and designers out there. Um, and all of their focus has been on performance, beating the rule, improving the rule, um, you know, having the most performance in the boat in the water. What we need to do now is to divert even just a small percentage of that gray matter to finding sustainable solutions. Uh, and so, you know, when someone says to me, oh, I don't know if we can really manage to have no single use plastic bottles on this event. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're foiling boats around the world. You're, you know, we're, we're, we can sail around the world now in less than two months. And so those type of arguments really are out the window now. And, you know, you don't hear them anymore. Basic best practices are being applied throughout our sport, whether it's kids, big teams, yacht clubs, or even in the charter and, and um, leisure industry. Uh, the bigger challenges now are really around um, 
using the innovation and the, the capacity within the industry to come up with the best um, sustainable practices and innovative solutions uh, for the industry as a whole. And, you know, alternative materials and also fundamentally looking at why are we out there in the first place? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering whether this, you know, the sustainability manager role is something that obviously, I mean, like I say, it is the perfect fit. You talk about it with real passion, but surely it doesn't preclude you or preclude the fans from seeing you on the water again, because I'm thinking of the last edition and that first leg with, uh, uh, with Vessus 11th Hour Racing, when, I mean, what was it? You're, okay, maybe a reserve sailor, but sustainability manager, 24 hours to go from the start? I mean, suddenly you're putting on your sailing boots. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot of satisfaction. I think that the whole team um, pulled out a win in the first leg and said us something mm. good stead for what was to come, which was, a, which was a hell of a ride for everyone involved. Um, and largely the reason why we're here today with, um, with the team re, um, reborn, if you like. Um, yeah, no, you, you can you can you can take you can take a sailor off the water, but not for very long, right? So, <laughs> I think what's fun for me is that now I can kind of step back a little bit and pick my battles. As a young athlete, you are willing to put everything on the line to achieve your goals, and that's really the epitome, I guess, of commitment. Uh, but it's a it's a vision that I think, in some ways, has been oversold um, the notion that winning at all costs is something that we should aspire to as young or old athletes um, in sport, in business, in anything. And, and I think that's wrong. Um, winning at all costs does have a cost. Um, it has many costs. It has social costs, family costs, uh, economic and environmental costs. And we really need to reframe what we're doing within sport as individual athletes, as an athlete that does or does not make it to the top podium. I think we can all recognize times when we've performed and delivered the gold or whatever it is, top, top result, but being less than satisfied with our own performance for whatever reason. Or many cases where maybe we've underperformed in terms of a pure, you know, lineup at the end of the uh, at the finish, but actually we've been very satisfied with our performance. Um, and I think we need to kind of broaden that perspective and start to consider actually, you know, what am I achieving? It's, it, it's more about the journey and it's more about, you know, it's not going to be satisfying to win a gold medal if, you know, if, if it um, has significant environmental and economic and family impacts. Um, social impacts um, at the end of the day. Um, and so I think, you know, the notion of why we're out there and what performance and what winning means needs to have a much broader discussion now, both from the event side and from the team side. Um, and there are many ways to win, um, but there, you know, we really need to consider what are the, what's the collateral damage associated with what we're doing. Um, and redefining what winning means. I think that's crucial.